0: Matthew 9, beginning at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I shall get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players And the crowd, in noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been put out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And this news went out into all that land. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men, following him, crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And after he had come into the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out and spread the news about him in all that land. And as they were going Out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke. The multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. One thing is certain about the Christian life. We enter the kingdom of God by faith, and we are sustained in that kingdom by faith. To become a Christian, one must become one who <clears throat> must believe that only Jesus can save one's soul. Entrance into his realm isn't based upon anything that we have earned. We can't do any works of righteousness. That's not the basis. It's all about trusting in Jesus as the one and the only one who can deliver us. There's a story in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. It's a wonderful story. It was terrifying at the time. Where Israel began to complain, meaning the wilderness for the lack of food, drink, And uh, they began, uh, God provided food. He sent them this stuff that would come down every day called manna. And they began to complain about that manna. That was a no-no. To complain about the Lord's manna. I want you to uh, turn with me to that chapter for a moment look at uh, Numbers chapter 21 verses 5 through 9. It says, And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Referring to the man. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many People of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, that is, a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the the standard. It came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now you know what's so significant about this story? The greatest significance about the story is what it typifies in the future of the Lord Jesus. That's the real point of the story. Turn with me to John 3, verses 14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the one who relates the story of Numbers to Himself. And just as and in for our understanding in Numbers, when because of their sin they complained, they were complaining against God's provision. The poisonous snakes were sent. People were dying. Help us, Moses. Help us. You're the Lord's anointed. Intercede. He does. This is what the Lord says. Now, He didn't tell them to run around the camp seven times. He didn't tell them to do penance. He didn't tell him anything but this one thing. Look to the serpent on the pole. That's all you have to do. But you've got to look in faith. Believing that just the look will heal you. And so everyone who looked was delivered. Now that word look is significant there uh, as it is used throughout the scripture. And depending on the context, what, what it means is this. It is an intense look is what it means. To carefully examine. And it can mean to look longingly for for something or it can mean looking with hope of great expectation. Now the same Hebrew word is used two, uh, three ways in the Old Testament. Not, not, not that it's the only uses. One of the first uses is when God was destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. He told <clears throat> Lot Take his wife and his daughters to leave town because he was going to utterly destroy it. Do not look back. And what are we told about Locke's wife? She, she turned and looked and immediately was turned to a pillar of salt. But what was that all about? Just because you turned around? No, no, no. You've got to understand what's involved in the looking. Locke's wife's heart was in Sodom. She didn't really want to leave. Not that she was part of that crowd, and that perverse crowd, but her heart longed for Sodom, and that's why she was turned to a pillar of salt. Another instance of that same word was when Jonah uh, did not honor the Lord, was uh, sent to preach to Nineveh, and he gets on a boat thinking he can escape from God, and then... uh, He finds himself in the belly of a great fish, and in the belly of that great fish, you know what it says? Same word. Jonah looked to the temple. He looked in hope of God's deliverance. And God heard his prayer. He learned his lesson. The preacher learned, I better do what God tells me. (laughs) And the the fish vomits him up in the land, and he goes and preaches to and They repent. And then we have that instance that I just read to you about Numbers. Where everybody who looked to the serpent was healed. Now the point here is, you look because you, you believed the words that if you just looked, you'd be saved. And they were. What that tells us is a look of faith. You've got to have faith. You've got to believe that God is true to His Word. And if He tells you to do that, if that's the mechanism... Then do it. But so faith, as Hebrews 11, 1 tells us, by the way, what is how is faith defined? It's the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean you don't think it's going to happen. That's what faith is. It trusts the object that one is told to put their trust in. Now, let's see how this is fleshed out in these stories here that we have for us, it's recorded in Matthew, but it's not only recorded in Matthew, but it's recorded in Mark and in Luke as well. And as we've pointed out before, it's important to take a look at all of these uh, synoptic gospel accounts. Because only then do we get the full picture. Matthew has a way to be very succinct in his uh, retelling of the stories. And uh, in fact, Mark and Luke's account is at least three to four times longer than Matthew's account. So, <clears throat> I want you to keep your hands. I don't know how you are going to mark it in your Bible, but we're going to go from one to the other so we get the full picture and what, how magnificent things are taking place here. Matthew is very brief in his comments in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, when it says, There came a synagogue official, and bowed down before him. Now, one of the <clears throat> we're not told there who his name is, but Mark and Luke do tell us what his name is. It's Gyrus synagogue official. Uh, The synagogue was governed by a group of elders, men. And he was one of the leaders of the synagogue where people came and the law of God was read. Jesus made it his custom to go into the synagogues. Paul, later on, would go to the synagogues first. And so this leading official comes. Now, the on your uh, translation, probably it says, he bowed down before him. You know what it really says? Uh, the other gospel writers say he fell at Jesus' feet. And it could be in your margin, as, as in mine, it says he worshipped Jesus. He falls at his feet and entreats Jesus. Now, let's take a look. I want you to turn over to Luke's version. Look at Luke 8, 40 through 49. And for you to mark in your Bible, we're going to also turn to Mark 5, 21 and following. That's Mark's version. And Mark and Luke are very similar and what they have to say. It's apparent in this sequence, there is a difference that's not the easiest to explain. There's no contradiction in the Bible. We have the official in Matthew's account saying, Jesus come, my daughter has died. If you come, she can be healed. That's not exactly the way it's stated in Mark and Luke's account, Uh, because if you look there, it says in verse 40, And as Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they had all been waiting. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet, began to entreat him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. She was dying. She was in the process of dying. She, he knew she was near death. And that's what Mark says as well. So let's understand what's going on here. you got this leading official. The scripture says, he says, he had his only, his only begotten daughter, a 12-year-old girl. It was the gem. She was the gem of his life. The only child. And she is near death. He loves this daughter. It's all that he has in terms of children. It's his only child that he and his wife were able to have. She's precious. Jesus, come. If you come, I believe you can heal her. So come, Jesus. We're told that Jesus immediately gets up with His disciples to head that way. But the crowd is pressing in on Jesus. He's the miracle worker. And on their way, now you get every sense in this, you get the idea of urgency. Come to the house. She is near death. Get there quickly, Jesus. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. And so they're on their way. But all these people pressing in on Jesus. And uh, you could only imagine what's going on in the mind of, of Jairus. He could be thinking, I don't we don't know exactly what he's thinking. He could say, get out of the way, get out of the way, you're stopping us, getting to my house. You don't understand. My precious daughter is dying. Don't be pressing in. Divide the way. Just make way. Does, does anybody know? Does anybody care that my daughter is dying? And now everybody's... He, it's slowing them down. Slowing them down. And so <laughs> we see here this unexpected delay on the way to Jairus' house. But it provi- this delay provides another great lesson in faith. Because in that crowd that was delaying their progress to get to Jairus' house was a woman. And we're told that this woman was one that had a hemorrhage. A hemorrhage is a bloody discharge. And it's always passing blood. This poor woman had been af- afflicted with this disease for twelve long years. Twelve years she had been inflicted with this disease. Now, one of the one of the sad things about having that d- uh, disease is that she was ceremonially Unclean, according to Lewis, Leviticus chapter fifteen nineteen, meaning she couldn't come and participate in the sacrificial system. You can look up sometime Leviticus fifteen nineteen and following, talking about women. At a certain particular time in the month they can't do sacrifices because they're ceremonially unclean. This woman has ceremonially uncleaned for 12 years. Constant flow of blood. If you look at Mark's account, look at Mark 5. Look at verses 25 and 26. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Now all I will say about that verse is I can understand. <laughs> Spending all your money and yet you just end up worse than before. Look the point here is nobody could help her. No physician was helping. In fact, the text says she had spent all that she had. I've known people spend enormous amounts of money to try to be Healthy, only to get worse and then die. This poor woman, afflicted for 12 long years, ceremonially unclean, out of resources. Now, where is she going to turn? In a human point of view, she's without hope, it says. And so, what we have here. Is we got these two scenarios going on. We got Jairus, the official. Jesus, come to my house. My precious daughter is dying. Move aside, everybody. Hurry, 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 hurry. Let's get there. And then you got this woman. Now, notice what it says about this woman in Luke. Uh, look at um, Luke 8. And it says, well, actually, we need to look at the Matthew because of what she is saying. Look at the Matthew passage, verse 19. It says, And Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from the hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringes of his cloak, For she was saying to herself, if only I can touch his garment, I shall get well. Actually, the word there is saved. If I can only touch his garment, I can be saved. Twelve years afflicted. Ceremonially unclean. Can't go to the sacrifices. By the way, those who were unclean, they made it a point. Not so that... Because Leviticus says, according to the law of Moses, if you touch her, you become ceremonially unclean. So she's concerned about others. She doesn't have the uh, the, uh, purpose there of touching Jesus. There's every indication that she doesn't want to defile Jesus. But if I can touch his garment, maybe, just maybe. So you got Jairus on one hand, hurry, hurry, crowd, get out of the way. My daughter's dying. We gotta to get to my house. Then on the other hand, this woman, oh, oh, if I can just touch his garment. I don't even touch, just maybe. If I know if I can touch his garment, I'll be healed. So we have those two scenarios going on. We're told that Jairus believed that if Jesus if Jairus believed that if they can get to the house, he says, I believe you can heal him." The woman believes that if I can only touch his garment; I can be healed. Well, we're told in Mark, Mark's passage in Mark five twenty-nine and thirty, and Luke eight forty-four says she came up from behind Jesus and touched his garments, and immediately the hemorrhage stopped. This hemorrhage had been going on for twelve years; immediately it was stopped. She knew she was healed at that moment. Now, what was she believing? She was believing, if I can just get close enough and, no, you know, delay. She was thinking, "Don't go, Jesus, don't go. Hold on, Jesus, don't go." Jairus says, "Hurry up, hurry up." No, no, wait, wait. Hurry, hurry. No, wait. And you got faith on both sides of this of this going on. She touches the fringe of his garment, we're told. And then we're told that Jesus, if you look at Luke's passage there in Luke 8, 45, Jesus says, Who touched me? Who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter says, Jesus, multitudes are are pressing in. We don't know who touched you, Jesus. I mean, after all, this crowd is such, there's no idea of who touched you. Now, I want to know who touched me, because what does the text say? He says, I felt the power of God leave me. Oh, where was he going? To the woman who had faith, right? If I can only touch his garment, I'll be healed. Now, we're we're told here, the evidence in um, Luke's passage, take a look at uh, verses 45 and following, it says, And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the multitudes are crowding and pressing upon you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that the power had gone out of me. So it's it's like Jesus is saying, I want to know, I want to know who did it, who did it? We don't know. But now look what it says about the woman. This is interesting. Look at verse 47. And the woman saw that she could not escape notice. She was all she was content with I touch it, that's fine, I'm here, I'll go my way. No, I want to know where the power of God went. She came trembling and fell down just like Jairus fell at his feet she falls at his feet she is frightened now what's she frightened about well it's it's almost as if it sounds like she's in trouble (laughs) and she's afraid and Jesus wants to know where the power is left and gone to and this phraseology is very important Here in Luke eight four forty seven. It says, and he declared well, it says, and when the woman saw she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. She can't escape it anymore. Jesus wants to know, and she's trembling, thinking she's in trouble, and she owns up. I'm, I'm the one who did it, Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus was ignorant of what was going on and who touched him? Now, after all, what have we seen in just previous incidences? Jesus reads the mind of people. We saw last week, he read the mind of the paralytic. Remember they lowered down through the roof? And he understood the man was concerned about his sins, and he says, Son, take courage, your sins are forgiven. He read that mind of that man, because that was his greatest concern. Was his Not only was he paralyzed, but he was concerned about his sins. And Jesus understood that, and we're also told, Jesus knew the mind of the paralytic. Pharisees and scribes. He says, you have an evil heart. You don't understand. So Jesus knows what people are thinking and because he's God. So you think that he doesn't know where that goes? What is he doing? He is forcing the woman before all to make a profession and confession of what's going on. He is going to drive home and express to her publicly... He wants her publicly to say what Jesus had done. And notice what Jesus says to her in verse 48. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. In other words, it's sa- same Greek word, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and saw so this woman. That had been suffering for so long, by whose faith he says, Your faith has saved you. He knew all along who it was. He just wanted to have her say it, and so everybody could see it and hear. Imagine the joy. He says, First of all, he uses a term of endearment. My daughter. Your faith has saved you. Now what did he tell the paralytic? remember that story last week. My son, your sins are forgiven. A term of endearment. Your faith has saved you from your sins, my son. My daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Imagine the joy. Imagine the joy in this woman, this poor woman, who had used all of her financial resources, was broke, and now that hemorrhage was healed. He says, it will be healed. It's gone. Don't worry. Go in peace. Imagine the joy that she could go to the priests and say, I no longer have a flow of blood. I can go to the sacrifices. Imagine the joy in this woman's life. But she went away from Jesus. But what's what's happened here? Faith and what? Now, <clears throat> I haven't forgotten the first one. It's you know what's interesting? Look at verse 49 of Luke eight. While he was still speaking, now what do you mean, still speaking what? Telling the woman, my daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While Jesus was saying those words to this woman, it says, while he was speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Oh, my, you can imagine. Jesus, if we get there, if we get there, I know she can be healed. And it's going fine until this crowd, this crowd comes and prevents it. And now, during this whole episode, here's this woman getting this blessing from Jesus, but it has delayed them. And now, the word has come. You don't even need to bother. Both Mark and Luke make this comment. You don't even need to bother to come. She's dead. What are you going to do now? My precious gem has died. I want you to see how Jesus ministers to Jairus. Look at verse 50. But when Jesus heard this, He answered... Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. Now, what's what's so significant about this? Here's where knowing some Greek grammar really is is good, because what he is saying here is present imperative, in not only in "Do not be afraid," but Keep on believing. So here's what Jesus said to Jairus. Upon hearing the word, his precious gem has just died. They were too late. Jairus, it's like this. Jairus, now look at me, Jairus. Look at me, Jairus. Stop worrying, Jairus. Stop being afraid, Jairus. I know it's in your heart. I know your precious daughter has died. Stop worrying, Jairus. And then what does he say? Keep on believing. I want you to keep on believing. Not only I want you to stop worrying, I want you to keep believing, Jairus, that all will be well with your daughter. Now, we're not told in the passage how much longer they had to go before they got to Jairus' house. But just think about it. Along the way, if you're Jairus, put yourself in Jairus' position. His only begotten child that they had hoped to get well, but they were delayed, and she has died. But Jesus is telling me, I don't know, it could have been a half a mile. Imagine that half a mile walk. Oh, she's dead, she's dead. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus says, Don't worry, don't worry. He gets about closer. Oh, she's dead. No, wait a minute. He told me not to worry. (laughs) He told me not to worry. All that could be going on in this man's man's mind. They arrive at the house, we're told here. Did you know that in biblical times they had professional mourners? Jeremiah talks about it. And especially, you, I mean, what is a professional mourner? It's someone that you bring in to, to cry and to weep. And they, it says they had the flute players, uh, the flute players coming in. You have professional mourners to weep for your loss, as if you can't do it yourself. Now, it wasn't necessarily negative. Jeremiah talks about calling in. Look at Jeremiah's passage. And this man, after all, was a leading official in the synagogue. So when the word was that the daughter had died, they brought the professional mourners. Of course, bring them in. So when Jesus and Jairus... Now we're told here that all the disciples are there and you got the crowd coming, following. But Jesus says now, he says the only one who's going to go in is Peter... James and his brother John. Jairus and his wife were the only ones he told everybody else to get out. Now when he got there, it says, look at verse 52 of Luke 8. It says, now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. Now Luke's passage talks about there <clears throat> uh, if you look at Luke, turn over to Matthew I mean turn over to matthew nine twenty three to get another part. it says when Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he called it disorder. Here's what was going on. <laughs> oh, 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 oh got to get your professional mourners now. They're moaning. They're groaning. And they got the flip player going on. Going on. Playing along. Oh, all this going on. It says it was just chaos when Jesus arrived. It was disorder. Get out. Get out of the house. I'm going into the house. Peter, James, and John. Jairus and his wife. The mother and the daughter. We're going to go into the house. Everybody get out. Now, Jesus says to the professional mourners, stop weeping. She hadn't died. Now, what was their reaction? It says they laughed at Jesus. Now, why'd they laugh? Oh, she's asleep, Jesus. Now, you think we're idiots or something? We know she's died. By the way, the text clearly indicates in verse 55 she did die. Uh, Because it says... Her spirit will return to her body. That is death. So Jesus says, they're laughing. They're skeptical. They're really mocking Jesus at this point. You think that she's just sleeping, Jesus? Come on now. What do you take us to be? Get out. Now the parents of this precious child, their only child, He takes her by the hand. Arise. She rises. Feed her some food. She'll be hungry. It says, verse 55 of Luke 8, Her spirit returned and she rose immediately and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat Oh, she did die. That's what we learn about death. Death is the separation of the body and the spirit. And all indications that where her spirit was, with the Lord, it came back, just like it did with Lazarus. After all, what did what did Jesus tell Jairus? Keep on believing, Cyrus. All is well, Jairus. But the daughter has died. Just Cyrus Trust me, all is well. All is well. And so we see, so far we see this this glorious episode of two people who stand out with great faith. Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage. And he says to both of them, Take courage, all is well. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has seen you through. You see, that teaches us something about faith. It's not just the faith itself. Just faith in and of itself will do us no good. It's faith what? In the object that can do something. I can have faith in a broken reed and it won't help me, but faith in Jehovah, faith in the Son of God, that's a different thing. So Jesus teaches a great lesson about faith. Now he comes in moments of great trial to minister to people. Well, Matthew mentions two other incidences. And that is, as Jesus was passing on from there, if that's not enough uh, amazing stories, he says, two blind men were following him, crying out, saying, have mercy on us. Son of David. Now, well, before I, I mention that, you know, when something that Jesus does, when He did to Cyrus, He does this miracle, and He says, "Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody." Now, He didn't say, "Get all the TV cameras in, on, and, and uh, be sure to focus in, and send your donation." That's Don't tell anybody. I won't go into all the reasons. It wasn't time uh, for Jesus to manifest that. But it says, now, if someone rises from the dead and you're around and you know this girl died and then she's living, now, what do you think you're going to say? You, You think, how fast will the grapevine go? Pretty fast. It says it wasn't long before the whole district was hearing about this incident. Now, these two blind men, they come, have mercy on us, Son of David. Now that term, Son of David, is very, very significant. Turn with me to Luke 1, 76-79. Here's the story when Mary is... With child, the Messiah. Um, we have Zacharias' prophecy about the Messiah. And here's what he says in verse 76 through 79 And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Actually, you should have read verses 71 and 72 because it says, Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers. That is what would come through the Messiah who everybody knew was to come from the household of David. Because the prophecy of David was there would be one of his descendants that would sit on his throne forever. Peter says at the day of uh, Pentecost and his resurrection, he says that day has arrived. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. And the Messiah would do what? As the Messiah, He would bring mercy. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, people were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Uh, They understood that the Son of David was a reference to His being the Messiah. And these blind men, obviously they could not see, but they could hear, right? They could hear. They'd heard about Jesus. And so now they know Jesus is coming by. Son of David, have mercy. Have mercy. And what does Jesus do? He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, we believe. They have faith just like the woman with the hemorrhage had faith. They have faith just like Cyrus had faith. And the minute he says, do you think I can heal you? Yes, Lord, a reference to the Christ. He touches their eyes, and they see. You know what he told them? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. But they go out and start telling people. The last story here is about the man uh, who has a demon. Now, this demon, what demon possession, one of the things about it, it brings a lot of physical uh, maladies. Uh, it's, you, can, you can be all uh, twisted up, deformed because of a demon, uh, demon being in you. Uh, just read the scriptures and you'll see all the various physical uh, effects of being de- demon-possessed. One here is it made the man unable to speak. In other words, dumb. And... <clears throat> It says, when Jesus cast out that demon, what was his impact? Now, here's the point. When that demon was cast out, what does Matthew 9, 33 record? It says, the multitude marveled, nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. Now mind you, you say uh, wait a minute, I thought Jesus cast out these two demons. They came running screaming down that, that cliff. Well that's another side of Galilee. That's that's on the other side of Galilee. That's not in Israel as it were per se. But now they are in the area of Capernaum. And when this demon is cast out, the people says, Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. And what does that tell us? Someone special has arrived. Someone special. And then verse 35 tells us, really, verse 35 summarizes for us what's all going on in all of these healings. Jesus was going about in all these cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom... And every kind of disease and uh, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now why was he doing it? I'm going to wait to Matthew 11 to really develop that. But the whole point was the prophets had prophesied centuries earlier. When the Messiah comes, he will come with wonders that no one has ever seen. He will be able to heal people. He will heal people of every imaginable thing. The dead will even rise. What is that telling us? The Messiah has arrived. If you put your faith in this man, you will be saved. Not only from your physical problems, your soul will be spared, saved. So, do you believe in Jesus? you believe in Jesus? The gospel of the kingdom is, Jesus is saying, believe in me. Believe in me. When he sends out, as we're going to see in the next chapter, next week's message, he's going to send his disciples out proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, empowering them to be able to heal in his name. Why? The kingdom of God has arrived. You don't have to wait a thousand years. You don't have to wait till the second coming of Christ for the kingdom to be set up. No, the scripture says the kingdom of God has already arrived. Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. And when he did these things, it says the kingdom of God has broken into mankind. It's here. Jesus Is the Messiah. The world will never be the same. Ever. The light has shone out of darkness and changed the world and has never been the same. So the only question, brethren, is this. Do you believe in all your heart in this man Jesus that He can save you from your sin? that he can supply all your needs? That's the question. Let us Lord, we thank you for your goodness.